0: The hub is a community. Manuscript,
1: book, and print cultures, stamping. Properties. You are
2: listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the community. It's created by community
3: The hub is about impact.
1: The hub is for everyone.
3: Good evening, everyone, and welcome. My name is Eve Patton, and I'm director of the Trinity Long Room Hub which is Trinity's Research Institute for the Arts and Humanities. So at the Hub, we support research right across the range of academic disciplines from literature to history to philosophy. And we bring that research to a wider public audience outside the university through our public humanities program. Uh, The Hub has been very proud to host the uh, Behind the Headlines series for over five years now, with the generous support of the John Pollard Foundation. Uh, And in this series, we invite a panel of researchers and experts to address or to reflect on a subject which is currently in the news or in the headlines. As the effects of COVID-19 continue, and as we move In and then out and possibly then back into lockdown, several recent headlines and editorials have turned to the topic of work and to the attitudes and practices and cultures which surround work. So in this Behind the Headlines, we want to take a further look at what work has meant to us in the past and what it means now in the context of major changes, which you all are familiar with, in the society and the culture, uh, which have been accelerated by the pandemic. The writer Philip Larkin wrote of work famously as a toad squatting on his life. Um, He was a poet and a librarian, so I don't think he had much to complain about. Uh, And after all, work, as well as being perhaps a toad, is in its various forms, um, whether it's industrial or agricultural, whether it's involved with the commercial or the public sectors, a unifying force for many of us in our lives. Work is a basis for a collective sensibility, a political identity. And for many, it provides value and social communion. How have these functions of work being perceived historically in Ireland and elsewhere? And how is the contemporary definition of employment changing and dividing us not just through perceived status or income, but in terms of those who can WFH, work from home, and choose when they want to work and where they want to work from, and those who can't, those who are still part of the nine to five or bound to the uncertainty of the gig economy. What are the implications for gender as we confront what one sociologist has termed, not a recession, but a she-session, the adverse financial and social effects on women who work from home and find they're also simultaneously doing the housework and the childcare, taking on double the load. And why are we seeing in the United States and elsewhere a growing resistance to work evident in the so-called great resignation that has followed the pandemic? Well, to discuss these, and I hope many other aspects of the culture of work, we're joined by four panellists, and I'm going to introduce them to you now in the order that they'll be speaking. Katrina Lally, in the spring of 2022, will be the inaugural Rooney Writer Fellow at the Trinity Long Rim Hub. She is the author of Eggshells, the Rooney Prize-winning novel from 2017, and the even more brilliant, Wonderland, just published in 2021. Katrina writes about the routines of domestic work in her fiction, but she also lives those routines. She divides her time between looking after her children, uh, her writing, and also working in the housekeeping department at Trinity College. As I'm coming in to work in the mornings, I'm aware very often that she is just finishing her cleaning shift And going home and I look forward to hearing Katrina's reflections on that commitment this evening. Katrina is going to be followed by Dr Carol Houlihan who is assistant professor in modern Irish history at Trinity. Welcome Carol. Uh, Carol is a social historian and a specialist in the social history of the 1960s and on the history of youth and poverty in modern Ireland. In her book, Reframing Irish Youth in the Sixties, which was published in 2018, she explores Irish attitudes to employment, to welfare and inevitably to emigration. And Carol has also frequently taken a longer historical view on how women have been positioned and then repositioned within an Irish culture of work, which has operated in tandem with the evolution and the pressures of the new Irish state. Our third speaker is Ryan Shanks. Welcome, Ryan. Managing Director at the DOC, which is Accenture's Research and Development Innovation Centre. Uh, he's also a member of the Trinity Room Hub Institute Board. For over two decades now, Ryan has worked at that very complex intersection of the workplace, technology and company organisation. And he deals on a daily basis with some of the issues that we want to discuss this evening. Uh, he works not only around the dynamics of the corporate world, but also refers to that larger, difficult context of changing work cultures and practices in relation to the advance of technology uh, and uh, technical innovation. And our final speaker is Ilsa White, and you're very welcome, Ilsa. Ilsa is a researcher in corporate learning at the Trinity company Learnovate, uh, Learnovate, which I was introduced to recently with great interest, is a dynamic new enterprise which collaborates with industry and enterprise partners to design better learning for well-being in employment. And Learnovate is therefore at the very cutting edge of current changes in how we understand work and, and particularly the ways that we might need to rethink work in a world where, of course, a job for life is no longer the norm. As always, with behind the headlines, each of our speakers has uh, uh, just 10 minutes to talk to you. And then after that, we'll move to questions and answers from you, the audience. So please do um, use the, the panel at the bottom of the screen to put in your questions and answers, your questions, and your comments. Uh, if possible, do mention your name and where you're from. Uh, and uh, we're also, of course, live streaming on Facebook. So those of you joining us on Facebook, again, you can use the Facebook panel and we'll try to go to those questions as well. As always, those of you tweeting, please do uh, use our Twitter hashtag uh, hubmatters and the handle at TLR And uh, Francesca will put those details in the chat for all of you in case you miss them, along with some links that are relevant to our speakers this evening. So the culture of work. That's enough from me. Let me now hand over to our first speaker, Katrina Lally. Katrina.
4: Hey everyone, thanks Eve. Great to be here. Um, looking
2: forward to hear. Sorry, am I muted? Okay, great. <laughs> okay, thanks. Uh, thanks for that, Eve. Um, looking forward to hearing everyone else. As Eve said, I'm a writer who also works as a cleaner, or um, I'm a cleaner who also works as a writer. Um, Sometimes I'm not sure which one to emphasize. So I worked as a cleaner here in Trinity as a student about 20 years ago. And I came back to the housekeeping department then seven years ago, just just after I'd written my first novel, Eggshells. And this was a conscious decision to find a part-time physical work, uh, a stress-free job that would work well with my writing. So I'll talk a little about my decision and how cleaning differs from, and complements, I think, my writing job. So compared to writing, cleaning is bound by limits of space and time as I see it. I work three and a half hours per day, five days a week, and our precise half hours are mapped out in my building. So I have to have one lecture room cleaned by a certain time in order to get to the next lecture room, in order to get to the various offices before the students or the staff need them. My cleaning job is counted in rooms and square meters in hours and minutes, and it's quantifiable, measurable, and it's easy to see if I'm dosing. There's a causality that appeals to me. If a room is dirty, I clean it, and Trinity pays me for that hour. It's old fashioned, simple capitalism, a direct transaction, I clock in at 5.50 a.m. and clock out exactly 3.5 hours later at 9.20 a.m. We cleaners talk in hours. You put in your hours, you do your hours and go home. What are your hours and don't go over your hours? Going over your hours and putting in unpaid minutes is seen as foolish. And there's a a retired professor in my building who comes in to comes back in to teach and do research. And some of the cleaners I work with are absolutely baffled by this and pity him, the idea that you'd come in and work for probably no money or little money when you could have stopped at 65 and you've put in your your years at that point. I've always been drawn to physical work for its satisfaction and its sense of completion. I spent my childhood summers on my uncle's farm in Mayo and loved helping milk the cows, clean the milking parlour and the churns afterwards and cleaning out the animal's bedding. I've delivered posts, done care work in nursing homes, cleaned in hospitals and private homes, and now Trinity. For me, it's not a class statement. I'm from a middle class background and studied at Trinity. It's just that I'm choosing stress-free work that I enjoy. An admin job would be hell for me for its lack of completion and the need to multitask, the need to react to constant requests and changes. Cleaning is routine rota work it's predictable, planned and constant. I've heard it called a leave your brain at the door job in its physicality. It's sometimes meant disparagingly, but I'd see it as mindful in its mindlessness. Mindlessness. I'd sometimes find myself in a version of that flow state as the psychologist Csikszentmihalyi described it. The total immersion in your task, which for me leaves my brain free to wander to my characters or a plot problem. Intense concentration on hoovering or mopping means a loss of self-consciousness. Total absorption in the physical seems to spark ideas or, or unrelated connections in my mind. And I find a happiness or contentment in this total absorption. There's no politics in my cleaning job. There's no meetings, no pretense, no schmoozing, no spoofing, no pretending to know things you haven't a clue about. You do your work, it's obvious whether you've done it or not and you get paid. And although I have a TCD email account, all our communication with supervisors is done through phone calls or actual visits to your work area. This means no inbox clutter or guilt over emails not responded to. Your supervisor rings, you talk to her, and the issue is sorted in minutes. For me, the fewer things I have in my to-do list, the better. Problems in cleaning are dealt with instantly. As well as choosing a job unrelated to writing, a physical job that couldn't be more... as, As well as choosing a job unrelated to writing, a physical job that couldn't be more different, I chose a steady job with a predictable wage. That was important to me. I needed financial stability and couldn't handle the precariousness of hustling for short-term writing gigs or teaching gigs. So I deliberately opted out of hunting for writing-related jobs to minimize stress and admin. I've used my work material in my latest novel, Wonderland. My character, Gert, is a carer. Her brother, Roy, is a cleaner in a model railway exhibition. I started off with Roy as a security guard first, but then changed him into a cleaner out of sheer laziness. I knew the job so well it would be less research. Some of Roy's thoughts about cleaning work and its frustrations come into the novel, but also the satisfactions of the job and the excitement at seeing interesting places in the early hours when nobody else can see them. I'll quote from Roy on the mop bucket, a thought directly lifted from my own floor washings. The mop bucket was blue and made of sturdy plastic to withstand the heaving and mop ringing without toppling and spilling. Roy liked the mop bucket. He liked things that were purpose built, the enchantment of specificity. One half of the bucket had a conical sieved funnel in which to wring the mop. The other had a slight jug like spout from which to driplessly pour out dirty water. What was most appealing about the mop bucket was that whoever invented it knew what they were doing. It wasn't a bunch of wafflers in a well-lit conference room, making decisions from words and numbers on high quality headed paper. This was someone who had cleaned many floors. Roy wondered if the collective noun for people who decide things they know nothing about could be a bluster, a bluster of suits. So writing then by contrast is unquantifiable, immeasurable, it's hard to prove you're working at it unless you produce something. With in relation to arts council funding applications or agent submissions or publishing submissions, if you're unsuccessful, it doesn't mean your work isn't quality. There's a lot of opinion in the decision compared to an objectively clean or dirty room. I find the proposed pilot scheme to pay writers a basic wage interesting. How would you choose the writer? How how, how would you pay? How does it depend, or how does it, does it depend on output or productivity? Do you have to produce something, or are you paid just to be a writer? So I can't wait to see more details of that scheme. Writing and publishing books is valued, respected, and seen compared to the sometimes unvalued nature of cleaning work. When I'm asked, I tell people I'm a writer and cleaner. Cleaning pays the bills, but writing is more sporadic pay. Because I'm not commercially successful, it's hard for me to view writing as a career. It's tempting then to take on extra cleaning hours because an hourly wage goes straight into my bank account, especially with the extra pandemic sanitizing hours. It's instant money compared to the long-term goal of writing a novel, which may or may not ever be published. And the flip side of working a job like cleaning that's very structured, is that I tend to prioritize it over my writing when something unexpected happens, a sick child or a pandemic, for instance. I have to show up at 6 a.m. to get paid and I have to keep my kids alive. So it's the writing that falls by the wayside if something has to give. I veer between telling people I'm a cleaner or a writer depending on the company too. In snootier company, sometimes I just say cleaner just for the shock value. Now that I have small kids, I value the simplicity of my cleaning job. Parenting and writing are occupations you think a lot about outside of actually doing it. Are you doing it right? Are you doing enough? Are you doing it as well as other parents or writers? Cleaning is straightforward, and there's satisfaction in that. And I think the pandemic made cleaning more visible, more appreciated. But still, I'm often surprised by how many articles or statements begin with, with everybody working from home now, or we're all working from home. It can be forgotten that not everyone's work begins and ends on a computer screen. I felt very fortunate during the first lockdown in being able to get out of the house and carry on working as normal, despite the childcare headaches it caused. In fact, I was nearly giddy with excitement during the time of the two kilometre movement restrictions, when I could get on an almost empty Lewis, Clutching my essential worker letter and leave my two kilometre zone to work in an almost empty university building, cleaning rooms nobody was using. So I think it's clear my two contrasting roles work together for me. When I took on the cleaning job nearly seven years ago, I could never have predicted the amount of interest it would generate. The job has not only financially supported me, it's given me headspace to think about writing. It's given me co-workers and friends who I can have daily chats with, hugely important for me because writing can be so isolating. And the job has given me material to write about in the form of Roy, my cleaner character. So thanks for listening. I'm going to hand over now to
3: uh, Carol Hulhans next. Hi, everyone. Um,
0: That was fabulous. I could listen to that for for a lot longer. Um, I might start by uh, clarifying my um, biography a little bit. My PhD students who are here will know well that I'm not a particular expert in, in gender or in women, but we actually have three historians who are, I see, Uh, in the attendees, including two who work fairly explicitly on work. So um, Susan, Olivia and Morgan, uh, I hope to to see you in the questions or you may help me out at some point. Uh, So I am a historian and today I'm going to try and do three things. I want to use the example of my parents' working lives to help us think about work cultures of the past. And then I'll talk a little bit about how historians have approached The Irish story of work and then I'll briefly towards the end mention how class difference is necessary um, a necessary consideration when trying to understand different work cultures. So work whether it's paid or unpaid is a central feature of human life and certain kinds of work leave a paper trail and as a historian I obviously have an interest in that paper. States monitor certain kinds of work through the census through taxation and welfare systems, generating pay slips, pension forms, P60s from the revenue, mundane documents, but ones that actually tell us a lot about people's lives. When my father passed away, I helped my mother fill in the form for the widow's pension. It required the details of all her and dad's former employment, and in filling it in, you create a picture that is greater than the sum of its parts. You see the shape of people's lives you see the structures of the economy, you see the ideologies of their society. And the gaps might indicate children born, illness or unemployment, whereas continuous employment might tell us something of the health of the economy or the pervasiveness of the idea of men's breadwinning role. It's not that long ago that women, when they featured in the Irish media, were regularly asked, and what does your husband do? A section on the form asking if you ever worked abroad reveals how welfare systems are national and how the movement of workers leads to extra paperwork. A lack of entitlement to a pension then that tells us a different story, work that is not remunerated it's off the books or under the table, a zero hours contract, the work of those who don't have a legal right to work or citizenship and their stories without the same kind of paper trail and different methods then are needed to explore them. My father kept every piece of paper sent to him by all of his employers. He began work in the 60s in Cleary's department store, working as a lino and carpet fitter. And that gave him access to homes all over Dublin and to places like RTE, the Gate Theatre, the transmission site at the top of Kapur Mountain, everywhere needs flooring. And from there he moved to Jacob's Biscuit Factory where he put on weight tasting warm cream crackers off the line. And then to Erlingus, where before 9-11 he could walk you onto a plane and put your bag in the overhead compartment and his last employer was the Dublin airport authority where after taking redundancy from Erlingus, he took a job collecting trolleys so that he didn't have to leave the airport so that he could continue to see his friends the lads. There is no break in service, there's not a week out of work. My mother's section of the form reads differently, she worked in a sewing factory from the age of 14 until she was married and this work was plentiful in the city of Dublin. In a factory that made blouses and shirts for Saks Fifth Avenue, every morning began with prayers led by Alfred Ramsey, the owner, a devout Catholic from England. And like dad, my mom worked with friends of the same gender and her working day featured more than the tasks at hand as she sat beside the radio and played the American Forces Network. She left paid work to have her first child and then had two more and the unpaid work evolved over time as she also cared for her sister and her mother. And at the age of 50 then, she returned to paid employment in Super Quinn supermarket, not for the social dimension, as was so often assumed when it came to married women's work, but for money. My parents wanted to move house and that was what it took. My mother's widow's pension form tells a story, not necessarily representative, but also not unusual for a particular generation of able-bodied, working-class married people who came of age in Dublin in the 1960s. The economy had grown in the early years of the decade and union membership grew dramatically. In Erlingus, my dad had what was considered a good job, good wages and secure, despite frequent threats of strike that usually had my mother prepare for Christmas in October. Their working lives also tell stories of their youth and their education, of what was expected of them, of what was available in the economy, and within that then the agency they had to shaped their lives. Women had long worked in textiles and working class girls were prepared for it during their leisure time, with sewing class as a feature of Catholic youth clubs run by nuns. It was at a very young age that class discrimination shaped these lives, whereas for her middle class counterparts, it was more likely that gender discrimination would be faced in a white collar workplace where pay was low and opportunities for promotion would be non-existent. And I'd mention here the work of Morgan Waite, PhD student at The Hub, uh, because her work on television reveals the way in which female production and research assistants could be treated as second class and disposable uh, employees in RTE and how the marriage bar didn't just end individual careers, it it shaped an entire uh, or broader work culture. My parents' working lives also wrote the story of their old age, jobs supported by PSRI contributions, a male breadwinner's wage that allowed for savings, redundancy payments for them both negotiated by their unions, and ultimately contributory state pensions. A characteristic of a so-called good job was one that could also provide some security for the years when you were no longer able to work. So my second point is to talk a little bit about the historiography on work in the Irish context. Historians have, of course, written extensively on Irish emigration, a phenomenon fueled by unemployment and underemployment, particularly in rural Ireland in the 19th and 20th centuries. Permanent emigrants and seasonal migrants are strong features of the Irish story of work, and they feature in E.P. Thompson's seminal book, The Making of the English Working Class, although not as fully fledged members of this class, but rather as a substratum or underclass, characterised by racial stereotypes. Much ink was spilled in the post-war period as population in the 26 counties continued on its long decline since 1841 on low marriage rates and their connection with inheritance practices of the family farm. That was the workplace of much of the population. A predominantly rural economy until the 70s, the late age at which fathers handed over the farm was considered detrimental not just to marriage rates, but to the productivity of the sector. And the work culture of the family farm was often considered a reason for high levels of emigration. Children worked under their parents' supervision, often without regular money wages, stifling their independence, curbing their access to commercial leisure outlets. And of course, only one child could inherit. Although when the government attempted to industrialize further in the 1960s, they found that in some rural areas, there was concern about the prospect of factory work. Sociologists conducted surveys of young people, and found that some were nervous at the prospect of working in an industrial environment. They expected it to be harsh. The bosses, no longer family members, strict. And the parents surveyed made clear their preference for white collar work for their children. The status of which was solidified by a historic dearth of industrial employment. And of course, its association with the urban working classes. In the world of work, the importance of family connections cannot be overstated. And here I'd mentioned the work of Olivia Frehel, the other PhD student in the hub, uh, who's looking at single women's work in the city of Dublin from the 1890s through to the 1930s. And her PhD research demonstrates how family connections and religious affiliation, and of course the two are connected, were often the conduits through which many people got their jobs. And this was true for my mother, whose two sisters already worked in the sewing factory. Sectarianism then had a particular role in determining employment opportunities in the north of the island, both before and after the introduction of the border and discrimination in the world of work was a key element then of the civil rights campaign that emerged in the early sixties. The importance of religion and the political ideologies of nationalism and unionism, political forces, which often smothered class difference at the ballot box, produced a rhetoric of political and religious unity, which underpinned both the free state and the state of Northern Ireland when they were established. And this brings me to my last point about class. While churches and people were highly sensitive to and aware of gradations of social class, community identity was and is powerful. In the Republic of Ireland, a tale of a 26 county we or us that could be incorporated under a Catholic and nationalist umbrella was potent, and it suggested that governments and institutions could only ever engage in pragmatic action on behalf of us all. The pandemic demonstrates both the advantages and limitations of the concept of a united we. We're all in this together is an important message when it comes to hand washing, social distancing and vaccination. It's more problematic when we think of work. Work life has changed dramatically for many, but different ways for different groups. Some worked harder and longer, in hospitals, in delivering goods, in supermarkets. Others found themselves with more downtime, having lost their commute. Work is becoming more flexible for some and less for others and flexibility at work does not always imply more agency for the worker the current crisis caused by the shortage of home care workers is an example of how flexibility can be the privilege of the employer who offers zero hour contracts and pays no expenses for travel the workers are a victim of flexibility which for them means irregular wages and no security the opposite of what for so long determined what was considered a good job. So I think the key point that came to me as I reflected on work cultures and how they've changed over time is that the culture of work can't be separated from the structures that underpin it. As my parents' example I hope demonstrates the nature of contracts and statutory entitlements that also shapes people's lives and in particular as they move through the life cycle into old age. So that is my 10 minutes and I am going to pass over now to Ryan.
1: Great. Thank you, Carol. Um, yeah, that came upon me suddenly. I was engrossed in what you were talking about. <laughs> this is, uh, it's excellent. And I think the, I think it's clear the culture of work is, is evolving. And I think that was a great description of how it, you know, continues to evolve. And in the pandemic, in the moment that we've had over the past 20 months or so, I think have been a point that has really influenced this evolution and forced a number of people to break habits or to change different habits around the way the culture of work works. But this equally I think is not all about the pandemic either because there's been a number of forces at play in recent years and I'm going to pull out a few of those in in my talk here on particularly in some of the technology trends and what advances in technology has been doing uh, to to the culture of work. Um, So there's three points that I'd like to make and I'll jump into uh, the first one then. So I would submit that there is a culture of cultures emerging and not a single culture of work. And this is only being exacerbated. Um, this is not a simple white collar, blue collar, or, or these sorts of uh, dichotomies, but actually a number of um, cultures emerging. And so let me uh, unpack this. And And both Katrina and Carol mentioned some of these aspects of the different needs that work fulfills for different people in their lives. And as a, as a manager in a, in a business, uh, this is, can be quite complicated to navigate, let alone trying to be a policymaker um, to, to solve for these different needs. One, of course, is that work provides money. I think that's the necessary evil that was uh, quoted around Mark, from Mark Twain. Um, unless you are one of these people that are independently wealthy or uh, perhaps on some schemes and other things that make work less attractive than not working, but in general, for many people, work is about providing money or some sort of sustenance. Um, It provides structure. And I think we heard uh, some uh, descriptions there. It reduces the cognitive load of choice. Uh, When do I work? Where do I work? And it enforces some level of discipline. Uh, I have people that I work with, employees and clients that some people relish that level of structure, others resent it. Uh, And and I think that is a a difference. For some work is providing some level of dignity, a sense of being useful. But not everyone needs work or paid employment at least in order to have that level of dignity so again that is a a different need Uh, for some people i can say a lot of the folks in in where i work in the dock at accenture uh, the average age is around uh, 30. a lot of my folks work is a social outlet it is a place where they're meeting friends it's a place where they're potentially meeting their future partners it's a place where they feel they're a part of a team and they're wanted Some people don't need work for that. They have family, they have community, they have other outlets for that. But for some, that is what work is about. And finally, um, work provides for some folks uh, almost everything, a sense of self-actualization and identity. uh, Some sense of I'm worthy, I'm successful, I'm winning. uh, And some of those folks have very little life outside of of work. So in this sort of culture of cultures, there are some mindsets emerging where we see some of these preferences colliding. We conducted a piece of ethnographic research back in July in the US and Germany to better understand some of these, uh, particularly as it relates to to habits of working from home. Um, I think some of that material will be shared in the, uh, after the session um, with an online results of that research. But in general, there were four mindsets that we saw emerging as these collide at the moment. Um, The first two are people that have been thriving Uh, during this enforced uh, work-for-home time period. And again, these are for primarily professional or or white-collar workers or those that are able to to do the work from home. Um, One was uh, for those that are thriving that have really embraced work by having a strict routine. Um, For some, and I hear this from working parents, for instance, The new routine is actually easier easier now than it used to be commuting in and outside of the office. So they're thriving in this because they found a new level of structure that suits them. Um, Others are thriving because of the lack of structure. Actually, the the really embracing the flexibility, choosing when to work two hours in the morning, two hours to the gym, two hours working again. You know, loving this level of flexibility. On the opposite side of the spectrum, we've seen um, this convergence in mindsets where there are some that are not thriving because their this remote work has actually hurt their structure. Actually, they find working at home full of distraction and something that they don't want to do and they can't wait to get back to the, the, the seclusion or the peace back in the office. Uh, and finally, some of the others that are struggling have been struggling at home with the flexibility. They struggle with boundaries. Uh, we are seeing some uh, employees that work way too many hours, uh, they, they find without the ritual of leaving the workplace and going back home and working sh- uh, purely from home is, is damaging. So this is, this is not the full solution or the full mindsets of everything of the culture of work, but I think gives a taste of this notion of the culture of cultures and these mindsets that are emerging and how do we as, as managers or as policymakers, et cetera, kind of navigate that to find the, the best answers for people. My my second point is that the new digital technologies uh, continue to to transform work and are breaking old norms. Um, A few points here, one on, um, uh, let's say uh, artificial intelligence, other sort of data-driven automation. Um, It's not necessarily replacing humans at the same level as some people had feared, uh, I can say, but it is, from what I can see, reducing the number of positions you may need on a team. So it's not completely getting rid of a job, but it's reducing the number of people you need in that job in many areas. Um, That has impacts for what what sort of uh, work is available. Also, we can see that the type of work available is getting polarized into sort of these high-skill and low-skill extremes with the mid-skill jobs being eroded away to some extent. In um, uh, and, and general, the, the, the lower-skill uh, sort of jobs are more precarious than those uh, on the high-skilled end, but this is also um, not the traditional remits of what people would call white-collar and blue-collar either. Um, if you think of um, a lot of these High quote unquote high skill sorts of jobs. I mean, the top six companies at the moment by market cap on the New York Stock Exchange would be Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, Tesla, and Meta. I mean, there's very few white collars worn in those companies uh, at the moment. And at the same time, in the low-skill world, I think this stigma of blue collar is one that is being debated. I loved your story, Katrina, about the the, the dignity and the mindfulness is just out of the of the cleaning job, there's a there's a company that I work with um, called Strongarm, which creates health and safety equipment for warehouse workers, and they talk about um, how they empower industrial athletes and in, in bringing in um, uh, that that dignity there as well. Um, technology is also beyond the automation debate is continuing to bridge, improving our ability to bridge distance and reducing the the importance of proximity, which I think will impact the world of work as well. So. The platform we're on right now Zoom is one that many people probably had no idea even existed two years ago and now it's it's one of the most successful startups uh, in recent years. Microsoft is investing in this area with its team's product. Um, these new technologies at the moment are enabling a level of of collaboration that wasn't possible with the telephone or conference calls or email. And there is more and more investment going into this space. Uh, it's controversial. you hear of the term metaverse which, friends at Facebook and Meta, I think, uh, are talking quite a lot at the moment out there. But if you put some of that um, marketing and, and, and launches aside, uh, virtual reality, or there's an augmented reality sort of piece of some really interesting new technologies coming out that would make remote working even more uh, engaging. For instance, Microsoft Mesh is a, is, a, is a product there. If you were to, to Google it, to have a vision of where they're gonna go. So I think technology is gonna continue to do this bridging of of space. And that reduces the importance of proximity, which means that employers can hire more so globally, or for instance, anywhere across Ireland and being less restricted to those that perhaps live within commuting distance to the office. It also means breaking down distance on a global scale um, without the ability, however, to magically break down time, which I think uh, folks may still be working on somewhere. Um, this further feeds that always on culture, which I think is another dynamic, particularly for those struggling with boundaries. Um, it's also interesting to note how the working hours are really being disrupted during COVID. We, uh, this was mentioned also earlier, uh, I believe by Carol, that we have some segments working more hours than ever and, and others uh, less, and interestingly, it's not necessarily traditional white collar, high skill, low skill either uh, in the sense, in fact, some of the you know traditional norms of, of, of high paid people out playing golf is actually not the piece of the companies I described earlier uh, in terms of always on and no boundaries. They're almost like the epitome of of, of, uh, examples of that. So I think with the diversity of these mindsets and the the technological impacts, my final point is that I think the real question for for workers is to what extent they have agency uh, and to what extent they have power to shape their own work life We did a piece of research in Accenture as part of our overall getting to equal research on gender diversity. And there was a piece in that I found interesting that 68% of the senior executives we surveyed believe that they're creating empowering workplace environments, but only a third of the employees uh, tended to agree with that. Also, those in lower skilled or frontline jobs are tending to have less choice on when and how and where they work. While on the other side of the spectrum, there's many more options uh, 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 opening up and available to people. Um, I also think reducing the importance of proximity empowers people to live in different places uh, than perhaps directly where their workplace may have traditionally physically been located, uh, which can also have positive consequences for rural areas, which we're seeing uh, talked about as well. So, my three points in this is one: there is a culture of cultures, um, uh, and and the related mindsets are emerging around the future culture of work. Um, Secondly, that new digital technology is transforming what work is available and also how we access it. And finally, that the real question here is to what extent our workers have agency and the power to shape this work life um, and choice. So I think as we emerge out of this pandemic, um, we and our colleagues and Many people on the phone have choices to make in terms of the new habits that we're going to shape as we um, move into the next few months. Uh, and uh, that's going to shape, I think, for instance, potential cultures for years to come. So with that, I will hand over to um, Isla.
4: Ilsa, thank you, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> thank
1: you. Sorry. <laughs> no, no
4: problem at all. I, I am Dutch. It's causing a lot of confusion in Ireland. So. Thanks, Ryan. And, uh, and thanks, Carol and Katrina, as well, for, for sharing your insights. It was really, really wonderful to hear your perspectives on the culture of work. Uh, and to the Trinity Long Room Hub, uh, thanks for having me. And hi to everybody else who's tuned into this conversation this evening. Um, my name is Ilsa White, and I'm a corporate learning researcher with the Learn of Centre in Trinity College. Uh, we're an applied research centre in the area of education and, and learning technology. And I'm here today to talk a bit more about one of Learnavate's most recent research projects, uh, which is on well-being and learning. And one of my colleagues said that today that today felt like the Mondayest of Mondays uh, in the whole year. So um, maybe this is a good time to talk about something positive and upbeat like well-being. So let's 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 see what we can learn. Um, I want to start off with saying that uh, why well-being and learning have become a particular focus for the Learn of Aid Centre, and it's really because we're starting to focus on the context uh, of the learner in the future of work, and that's really driven by the increased attention that uh, that, that learning and well-being and looking at the whole learner has been getting uh, from our members and industry partners, as well as a desire from, from our side to look at Uh, the future of work from the perspective of, of the learner. Um, But when we look beyond the Learn of Aid Centre's focus, uh, the topic of well-being is is getting a lot of attention as well at the minute and it's really no wonder. Uh, We know that that people with good levels of well-being are more likely to flourish in life and more engaged and productive than those who are less happy. And it was a wonderful example from from Katrina earlier about how she's describing to be in the zone when when she's cleaning. but what we see overall is that levels of well being have decreased or certainly haven't grown in line with the increased prosperity that we have gained over the past four to five decades um, with stress and, and burnout already being widespread well before the pandemic and 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 it's having a huge impact on our lives and in, uh, on our working lives in in particular. Um, so there's there's an increased awareness and almost like an awakening that that well being will play a very important role in how we manage our lives, uh, including our working lives and. The trend that we see is that good well-being is essential to navigate the changes at the individual level uh, when it comes to to the changes in work, and will increasingly also become a competitive advantage for any of the, any organisation as they start relying more on highly skilled and more resilient work, a uh, 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 highly more highly skilled and a more resilient workforce. Like Ryan was mentioning earlier on. Um, and we already see a lot of those changes to to how work and education are are shaping up and that's not at least um, accelerated by the global pandemic as as the world really collectively is starting to discover or rediscover what what our next kind of normal might, might look like. So the conversation is definitely shifting to one where we start having the discussion on how we can design well-being into our into our work into our lives in order for us all to uh, live those meaningful and happy lives that we're all that we're all really after um and through the research that we've did we we've, we've developed the belief that well-being or at least the skills to achieve good well-being can be learned that it can be practiced and developed and and, and in fact that learning itself contributes to to good well-being And the challenge for us is to investigate how we can cleverly use and apply learning to engage and motivate people to understand and and practice and and, and develop those skills that they need to to, to improve their individual and also organizational well-being. And I guess while well, we, we we've absolutely not exhausted the research on well-being. I think, in fact, we've we've only barely scratched the surface on it. And um, we did gain some valuable insight from our desk research that I wanted to share with you um, today specifically. So the first the first key takeaway from our research is is, is that when it comes to defining well-being, um, it's all about a matter. It's a matter of balance, a balance between our resources and our challenges that we that we face. And uh, that probably makes a lot of sense, um, but gaining and maintaining the balance is, is is easier said than done in reality, right? Just imagine standing on top of a ball. We're balancing all our plates, our work, our lives, our families, our friends, and we're ready to navigate our life path, um, which has a good few potholes, and 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 dead ends. So it's in reality, it's really hard work um, to stay on top of that ball. Um, Thankfully, though, um, us as humans, we're we're made of strong stuff, and we have the means to to improve and to maintain our our well-being. Um, uh, Sonia Lyubomirsky, who is a professor of psychology at the University of California, actually stated that we can control 40% of our capacity for happiness and and, and well-being. We can invest in in it and, and, and maintain and improve it by building up our resilience. And resilience is the key word here. It's generally considered... To be the antidote to stress and burnout which are the manifestations of bad well-being. It's, it's really the elasticity that we need to bounce back and regain our balance all the time. And I suppose the good news is that we can improve our resilience and the better we are at this, uh, the more likely we are to have good well-being and, and flourish. Um, like I said, it's easier said than done because when it comes to deciding uh, about you know what resources we need to invest in in order to be happy, we're not that great at making the right decisions Um, we think we know what's good for us but we don't necessarily um, uh, act on it or make the right right choices and and in fact make a bit of a mess of our well-being and the reason for that is that our brains are actually hardwired to to want the wrong things to make us happy and um, this is referred to in the literature as, as, as miswanting so um, basically what happens is our brains can overestimate the happiness that we achieve from all of the wrong things that we think are the right things like getting amazing grades or getting access to, uh, to a certain college, uh, building a dream house, um, getting that great job, but a great salary, and even things like finding true love. And like, let's face it, we, we spend a lot of time trying to achieve those. Um, but in fact, they're not making us as happy in the long term as, as we think they do. And um, um, we looked at the work of Laurie Santos, who is, who is a psychologist at Yale, and she refers to some of the neuroscientific reasons behind all of this, and she describes them as the annoying features of the brain, and it's things like we compare ourselves to others all the time and perceive their well-being as better than our than our own. And especially the role of social media is, is huge there. And um, another thing that we do is that we get used to things, which is called hedonic adaptation. So we don't get the same happiness of the same things after a while. And possibly, and most impactful, uh, most importantly, we we forget that we're naturally resilient. We have the natural resources, if you like. To, to face challenges, uh, particularly if they're having a negative impact, but we, we sort of just forget that we have the capacity to deal with those. So, what the argument is um, coming through from positive psychology is that we need to aim for almost a re- rewiring of our brain uh, and achieve that better wanting. And it's really about, um, and this is this is the this is the the the, the a little bit. Um, uh, um, the part where where I started lecturing, because it's all the things that we don't do. So we need to invest more time and resources in, in, in social connections because sharing makes us happier, even if it's with total strangers. Um, We need to focus on our signature strengths because we are are at our happiest when we do the things we love and that we're good at. But sometimes discovering what our signature strengths are is is, is a lifetime of work. Um, We need to practice our focus our minds to stop mind-wandering because apparently we do that 50% of the time. Um, um, And if we don't do that as much, we'll be more efficient and effective in achieving our goals. Um, and um, the recommendation is also to spend, to invest more in experiences rather than things. Getting that nice shiny car will make you happy for a little while, right? But a holiday or a meal with friends on the other hand has a much longer lasting effect on how happy we are. And finally, and this is where I feel really like a hypocrisy is that we need to develop habits to optimize our health, like sleep well, eat well and exercise well. All sound so logical and all sounds so easy, right? But not really. Um, our brain is really working against us all the time and winning a lot of the time as well, because we don't activate the parts of our brain that can say, well, hold on a sec. I'm going to choose and make a conscious choice and practice what is really good for me. It takes a lot of mental effort to do this and it requires practice, but we do have it in us to take control of our own well-being um, by developing the right skills. And the right skills, even though they're probably not exhausted, but there are there are 26 skills that have been identified by Martin Zeligman, who is the founding um, father of the positive psychology movement, if you like, that have, that have that are proven to have a positive and long-lasting effect on our well-being. Um, I won't have time to list them all here, but um, they will be in the resources that will be shared after today's sessions if you want, if you want to have a look at it. Um, the next, the next thing I would love to talk about is 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 work-life balance, right? So, I think it's very important to remember that well-being is a dynamic construct that has a lot of components that all impact on each other. We have, our, and we have to divide our resources between all of them. We have to divide what we have between work, our lives, our community, our families whatever, whatever uh, uh, systems that we, we are in. And there is a constant crossover and spillover of those resources between a person's work and life, for example. They happen all the time, and they can either have a positive or a negative effect on our well-being. Um, so what we do is we put boundaries and interfaces in place to regulate those work-life systems in a way that work best for us, that work best for our well-being. Um, uh, work-life systems in particular need structure um, and boundaries and interfaces provide that. But what the research shows is that defining what that looks like is not just up to the individual, like it's a negotiation within a work structure or it's a negotiation within a family or a life system to what extent um, those systems are either segmented or integrated or anything in between. And the key is that negotiating dimension of working out the strategy that best suits the individual and serves the interest of, of all that all, all concerned in mind. And that negotiation um, emphasizes that good well-being isn't just up to the individual, it's a shared responsibility between us and the organizations and communities that, that make up our system. And that also extends to to the relationship between work and life and organizational well being in particular. There's there's more conversation about um, wanting to achieve a culture of well being in, in organizations. And I emphasize, I want to really emphasize the point that that is not just up to the organization, it is not just up to the individual. Again, it's a negotiation and a shared responsibility and one that requires a more holistic strategy rather than the well-being week or the well-being program or benefits that that organizations uh, largely provide um, up until this point. Um, There's a need for a realization that good well-being is very important to the success of the organization. And I wanted to just point out, and I'm I'm, I'm nearly finished, um, that A Deloitte study that that, referenced, that we referenced in the research that suggests that about 80% of organizations actually do recognize the importance of workplace well-being for their company's performance, but only 12% feel that they, they have what it takes to address the challenge, so that suggests that, that, that there's still a lot of work uh, to do still. Um, going back to the context of LearnAvate, what we know is that well-being or the skills to achieve good well-being can be learned can be practiced and that learning in itself actually contributes to good well-being as well. Um, so what we've done is we formed a research working group that's made up of uh, uh, some of our researchers and representatives from our members, industry members, to, to uncover how um, uh, what well-being challenges that they face and explore how we might find a solution um, for those challenges, which is very exciting opportunity for us. And and we hope to develop a solution that will make a positive difference to a member's um, organization's well-being. And who knows, I could come back here uh, next year and and hopefully be able to talk about some of those achievements. But um, I think for now, um, I'd like to thank you for listening. I I hope that was interesting and you learned a a thing or two about well-being in relation to work. Um, But with that, I will hand you back to our wonderful host, Eve of the Trinity Room Hub. Thank you.
3: Well, thank you very much, Elsa, and all the speakers. Absolutely fascinating inset- insights already. And I can see questions coming in. And everybody, please do feel free to put questions or comments into the Q&A panel, or again, if you're on Facebook, Uh, do add your question into the Facebook Q&A panel. Um, And I know there'll be lots of questions uh, on the topics you've raised. Um, Ilsa, I might just start with you, though, um, not to let you off the hook too soon, because (laughs) Ryan talked about agency, and and that is a topic we'll come back to. But it seems to me that a lot of your focus is understandably on how the individual must develop Mm -hmm. resilience. Um, But What is the balance between what you're doing for individuals and that they develop well-being and and strategies themselves and what you're doing with employers, because in the past we might have expected employers to look after our well-being. We had trade unions, we had the factory canteens, uh, we had the work social events uh, and so on. How much has that balance shifted to the individual? It's the individual's responsibility to make work work.
4: Yeah, I, I, it's, a, it's, that's a great question, and I, and I think, I think it's to do with the fact that the conversation between employers and, and employees is, is changing, um, largely as a result of of the pandemic, and and Ryan is right to to um, to highlight that, that that concept of agency. I think what's happening, or I hope what will happen, is that um, individuals will really have a good think about what is important for them what are the changes that uh, the choices that they are making around their careers around a relationship with work and, and and what it is that they need for them to to be well or to be happy in 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 relation to that work. And tell the organization about that. I, I don't think that is, is a conversation that has happened so far. It's almost like a going back to that point about negotiation, it's it's almost a, a renegotiation of the psychological contract that exists between an organization and an individual. And, and for that or that to happen, that, that that negotiation or that conversation to happen, I think both individuals and organizations need to think about what it is that they need and share those needs with each other. And, and hopefully um, uh, those conversations will, will be facilitated as we're all trying to figure out what work will look like in a, in a post-pandemic pandemic world, if that makes sense.
3: It does, and of course, it's going to demand a particular kind of attentiveness and sympathy on the part of mm-hmm. the employer, and, and possibly as much education going to the employer, um, which uh, I know, Ryan, you, you may want to come in on as well. But let me... Let me um, go to some of the questions that are coming in because a very interesting question uh, from Michael Casey, which uh, I would have been keen to ask this myself, Michael, is about value. And I think this word has come up a couple of times. It's tremendously important how work is valued or how we value ourselves as workers. And Michael puts it in a nutshell for you, Katrina. Uh, How does your sense of satisfaction compare from cleaning a dirty room to writing a good sentence? So that's a very, very tricky question. How do you value the work you do? And I'm gonna to add to that. Does it matter to you how other people value the work you do? And that's to you, Katrina. You- yeah, yeah. Um,
2: yeah that, that's an interesting question um, in terms of value. So, the okay, the sentence on the room, I, I think I would get more satisfaction from a clean room than a, a good sentence because Again, it comes back to objective or subjective. A clean room is a clean room. I could think I've written a brilliant sentence and then an editor will come along and tell me to scrap it and bin it. So it it doesn't have value then in and of itself. Now, I do keep a a folder of sentences and paragraphs and will hold chapters that I'd I'd like to reuse somewhere. Um, Even in terms of writing, when when I finished a book, even my first novel came out six years ago now, I still, if I have to do a reading from it, I'm still correcting just before I do the reading I'm taking a pen to the page or to the section I'm reading and correcting it so I think with most writers it's never finished and so for completion and satisfaction I'll go with the clean room Um, then value does it matter to me I don't really care I suppose what people think of the work is that what you you're asking about Mm -hmm. yeah I and I, I suppose i probably go out of my way to antagonise people who are snobby about uh, cleaning or, or manual labour. Um, I, like I get such intrinsic value from the work itself. Uh, it, it has been strange to me how people have reacted to it, like even among my friends. When I had a, before I had a cleaning job, I had an office job. And when I went from the kind of white collar, sitting in front of a computer job to decide to take on physical work, there was a lot of shock among people I knew and, you know, some former colleagues that the idea that you'd kind of go down if you like, but in terms of an hourly wage, I'm earning as much per hour as a cleaner as I was in my last content writing job. So, um, no, for me, it's internal satisfaction rather than how other people perceive
3: me. So you've become in a way you become, you've gained the resilience uh, that, that, um, has been talking about. But of course, you know, when we, you know, we see the cleaners who work in college every morning and again in the evening and and various points in the day, and I'm aware that many of them are not from Ireland originally, perhaps, and I'm also aware that many of them are of very different ages and some indeed much older, and I think a question has come in which has a bearing on this from uh celine uh celine Taubois, who's with us about her own parents taking on quite arduous physical jobs to support her and and so on and this is something many of you will know about but how do we support workers in manual jobs in quite demanding physical jobs as they age are we attentive enough to that kind of problem i mean katrina do you have contemporaries in the cleaning staff who you know are struggling with the demands of of a physical job this is very physical I I know that
2: it is yeah yeah it it is a huge problem and I think it's become more relevant recently with the the idea of pushing the retirement age to 67 or 68 when if it's an arduous cleaning job that's really tough and I've only started it relatively recently the last seven years but the women who would have done it Going back generations, like you would say people who are retired coming into retirement age now in their 60s and who have done it for the last 40 years. It was far, far harder 40 years ago, you know, when there was there wasn't the same level of lifts or like what the manual handling courses we do and the the you know putting Hoover, say on every floor rather than lugging at Hoover up and down floors. So a lot of these women would have, and it is generally women, um, would have injuries like going back years that. They do struggle as they get older. Now, Trinity, I think, is a really good employer in that they tend to help out older people. They might put you in a, a less arduous section. Um, like, I, th- I think they're decent like that. But, yeah, the age thing is a factor. And I don't know how to get around it other than the decency of an employer to kind of work around uh, age. And, yeah.
3: Yeah. And, I again, I mean, Ryan, you were talking about, you know, the workforce that you're looking at who tend to be around the average age of, I think it was, was it 30, you know, young, still flexible, still ready to to learn, uh, uh, still presumably with all that confidence of youth. But do you see a huge schism between that generation and an older generation who are going to struggle with the kind of flexible working culture that you've been talking about?
1: Um, yeah, it's an interesting time in history now to have so many generations in the workplace at the same time, and then also, and we can debate Gen Z or Gen Y, uh, you know, whether or not these things are meaningful. But at the end of the day, you know, for me, uh, I I joined obviously the work the workplace just as computers were starting to come in, <laughs> and I would have bosses still working that remember work before there were computers but I have employees right now that have never known, that are joining, have never known life. And I guess through your students without the internet mm. and certainly with mobiles and just that, what it does to their brains, what it does with behaviors, what they do to their expectations, I think is a really interesting um, uh, a, a difference through, through the time. I don't like to make the assumption that older people are not flexible I think this is another interesting thing, the, the, I mean, if I'm crass about it, from a business sense, they're the ones with the most money, right? Uh, and as you see how things are going right now from that generation, uh, how to create products and services that surprise and delight the 40, 50, 60, 70 year old is as important as how you do that to, you know, 15-year-olds or 20-year-olds. So I think trying to create new products and services that are as relevant for them as they are for young people is also important in business. And I can tell you, you can't have twenty year olds trying to guess what a sixty year old is looking for in the products and services. It's not how it works. So diversity in the future is not all about just a youth game in that sense. You know, I think the but also having access to that broader wisdom, I you know and I don't want to get into too much of the generational bashing or these different things at the moment, but there is, I think the the wisdom of of managing people, I think what's interesting, it's we try to create policies and procedures, be they in the public sector, the private sector, wherever that may be for wellness and everything else. And we do our best to do that. But at the end of the day, there's a humanity in it, right? It's, it's the individual bosses and people that make the right decisions for everyone. And it goes into the wellness piece as well. As much as we try to bureaucratize it or policy, create policies out of it, it's, it's, it's a people business. And I think it's another thing that I think is, um, in some ways, I feel that the older generations, perhaps because they didn't have all of the technology all the time, certainly has a certain amount of um, ability to help lead through through some of the harder things people go through and to make those decisions on wellness and, and other things. Uh, so anyway, I'll just throw that out as another provocation from the generation, exactly. but it is a fascinating time right now to have. Such a diverse range of people at work all at the same time with such different lived experiences, what the culture of work is. Um, My last point, I guess, is I also, there was a comment or question around the sectors, and I think that's also when you walk through the halls of Google in Dublin at the moment versus through the halls of the Department of Education versus through the walls of, or the halls of uh, 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 Bank of Ireland versus through the halls of, I mean, The lived culture and work culture is dramatically different across these places, and also then take the generations at the same time, so uh,
3: yeah. Exactly, and and that is relating to a question that's come in from Margaret Robson, rightly drawing attention to the public sector workers, for whom a lot of the things that we're talking about are not relevant to what she talks about as this atomized landscape. Um, and I think that's a very really useful question from Margaret Robson, which brings me to something that a couple of you touched on, which is the way in which language itself is having to adapt and evolve to try to register and represent something which is moving very fast and changing very fast. Ryan, I think you was it industrial athletes that you uh you had to coin uh, to try to represent a particular kind of worker mm-hmm. and i was wondering carol if if this is something you've looked at at all in in the way that you so carefully document the paper trail around the different kinds of working lives of your mother and your father is is the language itself sometimes what is creating the problems i mean for example you know we we've seen the word home worker evolve uh, to try to replace what's now I suppose the outdated housewife, does that help to make that kind of reclassification of of roles? Does it change the way we value or perceive of particular jobs? That's to you, Carol, I'm sure you don't want it, but I'll try. Sorry, I didn't realize I could unmute myself.
0: Um, Does the language make a a difference? the language I suppose there's so many different languages coming at us and the when I hear the language of uh, around wellness and well-being I am very much in in favor of it and yet it seems like something else I have to figure out and do. Uh, I think the thing that strikes me is the, is the issue of boundaries and work and how they've been broken down by changes in um, technology, like the access to the internet all the time. Um, And so then the question is putting up boundaries for your work-life balance. um, But to do that as an individual and to negotiate with a a company or a structure is very difficult. You need to do it as a group with some sort of sense of uh, solidarity, I think. And I think that's my concern about working at home, which I really enjoy personally. But working at home is fine until you have a problem and you need to talk to someone. Um, and I'm not even always confident about talking on on Zoom. You know, in terms of your privacy and security, it's very nice to talk to people uh, one on one on one. And um, so I've gotten very far from your question, Eve, about. The changing language around uh, work, but I suppose I think the language uh, what matters if different kinds of work is recognised and given language. What matters is that it's underpinned um, with something substantial um, and is supported in some way.
3: And I'm gonna I'm gonna bully you a little more as a historian to think about. Uh well, language, I suppose more more accurately, representation, which I think is such an interesting aspect of thinking about changing work cultures. We've got so many representations of particular kinds of work. You know, I teach the industrial novel. We've got all kinds of paintings of uh, laborers in the fields, you know, enjoying their their picnic in between the harvests and so on. It's much more difficult to represent the kind of workforce that Ryan has been talking about, perhaps. You know, it's not quite as interesting to show people in front of screens. But do you think in, in an Irish tradition and in an Irish history, representations of work itself have tended to be negative, and we're perhaps carrying the baggage Mm -hmm. of many of the difficulties around a work culture that have existed in the past. You spoke uh, about emigration, for example, you spoke about E.T. Thompson's representation of Irish laborers, and of course, we've got a whole tradition of, you know, how Irish workers have been represented abroad. Um, And of course, for women as well, there's very often negative connotations around the status of work done traditionally by the Irish. I know we've got uh, some of uh, the uh, the PhD students you mentioned earlier, Morgan and Olivia with us and, and Carol perhaps, the other Carol. But um, do you think that, that there is a sense in an Irish historical culture that work doesn't have quite the positive definitions that it might have in other countries? I'm stereotyping and generalizing terribly, but That's I was no just problem. very interested. <laughs> <laughs> um, I,
0: I suppose the economy has been such a problem um, on the island, you know, that the its location between Britain and the United States, that it's predominantly rural, that the economy um, of the northeast linen and uh, shipbuilding, things that go in the decline throughout the 20th century and yet surrounded by these modern industrializing growing economies that yes the economy is a problem and work is a problem Um, and in terms of immigration is a problem it's a barometer for the health of the nation Um, and and female immigration is a particular problem because so often in the 20th century they're not seen considered to to be economic migrants so what is it that they're leaving they're leaving a particular way of life that is more rural and traditional, and women are really vilified uh, for that. The idea of working and doing the women's work on the the family farm and the difficulty of it, uh, and women then are kind of castigated for desire, seen as being uh, being desiring of an easier life in in an urban society. Um, There's plenty of work in Ireland at all times, but it's this question really of a a good job and what is considered to be a good job and in a place with a weak industrial base, the good jobs were white collar jobs in government or jobs in the professions, jobs that were stable uh, and secure. And there was a certain amount of uh, manual work, but not as much compared to other places. And unemployment is, unemployment um, rears its head and then you have high emigration, you know, even with the most recent crash. So, yeah, work can be negative because it mightn't be there and that actually might lead to you leaving, lead to you leaving the country. There's a long kind of tradition uh, of that. Yeah,
3: exactly. So work. In Ireland always carries the shadow of its other, the not working and and the emigration trails. But I suppose another division is between um, permanent, the the old style job for life, where you're defined by what you do. I am a doctor, I am a lecturer, I am a teacher. And then uh, another kind of work, which is temporary and mobile, and which might change dramatically from one month to the next. You know, what are you doing at the moment is the question and you're not defined by it. And I think Mary Brady has asked this question very uh, very sensitively, a question she's saying and putting to you Ilsa, uh, is there any research into perceptions of the workforce on the value or not of permanent employment? And I suppose she means there as opposed to impermanent employment or, or uh, you know, uh, transient occupations. Does that make a difference? And particularly in terms of wellbeing? And
4: I'll ask you to unmute Elsa. Yes, lost my mouse there for a minute. Um, I think, like, is there any research into the perceptions of the workforce on the value of permanent employment? Yes, I am. I'm. I'm very sure there is. And I, like, from what others were saying earlier as well, is that I think it's 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 a little bit of maybe going back to that generational um, conversation that we were having that. Um, maybe the older generations that are still in employment have that ideal, very strong ideal of being in a permanent, uh, a permanent um uh, career or permanent job, but that's important because um, you know, the, the the job provides, the job meets the basic necessities of of the life. Whereas for somebody who's coming into the workforce now, some of those kind of permanencies in terms of getting a new house or building a family and I'm totally generalizing here you know it might might be a little bit less important or less unattainable um for for some people who are just joining the workforce now and with that and um, there's a different sense or a different different approach that they take towards work and looking at okay the permanency of it is less important it's more the experience of work and experiencing different. Uh, different types of work that, uh, and I'd love to actually hear Carol's perspective on this as well as how that's changed over time. Maybe um, I think it's there, and 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 I keep thinking when I hear uh, the conversations that there is there is this this really interesting and wonderful book called The Hundred-Year Life," uh, and it really it starts from the perspective that um, uh, we're living longer longer lives, we're in the workforce longer. And that there is no such thing as having a job for life anymore, that every we don't have that sort of uh, uh, device into, okay, you, you do your education, you do your work, and, and you retire. Because we're working longer, we can have multiple careers and, and we'll have to reskill to have to do different things um, as as jobs disappear or change or as as the environment changes. So um I think I think that's re- a really interesting way that those transitions in in during our working lives or during our lives really are, are are changing in the longer term. So be it's 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 yeah, I'm very interested in 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 how that's going to kind of play out over the next years. But um I definitely do think there's a changing perception on on the importance of permanency of employment mm. and also the availability of us.
3: And yet, you know, from Carol, what Carol was talking about in, in relation to her father, who would change jobs simply in order to stay with his friends or, you know, work according to the, the social context of the job, you've quite a different sense of why mm-hmm. work is valued. And it's not to do with that kind of self-definition, I imagine, which I thought mm-hmm. was a really interesting point. Um, Celine, I know you've joined us and I I took your question earlier, but did you want to add anything as you're with us? I uh, thank you so much for the opportunity and thanks to all speakers. It was so interesting and really moving to hear you all as well. Um, And I think my question was for Katriona, and I really wondered, you know, how that physical dimension of your job might have an impact or how it might interact with your creativity. And of course, the example that I gave about my parents was more related to age, but I'm thinking here as well of all of our students who are taking up physical jobs to pay for their studies and how this might interact you know, with their creativity and, and with their uh, writing skills and study skills. Thank you. Thank you, And I'm going to add on to that question. Uh, I think it's Bar Fitzpatrick who uh, quotes you, Katrina, as saying, mopping means a loss of self-consciousness. Can you describe how this differs from your mental state when writing? This sense of using the physical to to animate the mental, but also keeping the two divided, is really interesting as a way of valuing a particular kind of physical work, which normally we might bypass. Is that, does that register, what selena has been talking about, register with you? Katrina
2: yeah yeah absolutely um but for me I suppose it comes with the silence of it like I'd say there's a lot of obviously different types of physical work and the the what Celine is talking about students taking on you know maybe retail work or bar work or those kind of jobs if that might necessarily for me that wouldn't give the same level of um flow I suppose because you're constantly dealing with people so I have you know I have an empty there's an empty building. Five of us work in the museum building in Trinity. We come in and on a Saturday now, and I worked last Saturday and I'm on my own in the building for, for the few hours. And that's kind of amazing. But that's for me, that's where I go off into my own little uh, my the zone, I suppose. Um, I think the loss of self-consciousness comes from just maybe not directly thinking of the work It's of the writing work. Um, You're just you're engaged, fully focused on the task at hand, which is squeezing out your mop, you know, mopping the floor and seeing something go from dirty to clean. There's just something really, it's so simple, but it's satisfying in a way that I, I don't get satisfaction from cooking or something because cooking is like writing, I suppose, a creative thing where it's never perfect or never fully finished.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, but yeah, it's being on your own for me. Then writing, I don't have a loss of self-consciousness with writing because mentally you're so engaged directly engaged in trying to find the right word the right sentence so you're so focused on it I suppose you lose yourself to like similarly in that I might not hear someone calling me if I'm fully engaged in writing or fully engaged in cleaning but with the physical immersion it leaves my brain kind of free to go off like I don't even know that I'm thinking sometimes and then you have a light bulb moment it's it's such a cliche but you might just think oh that's what I'll do with those two characters I'll just send them abroad or mm-hmm. you for me that's how it works but again it's the silence and the empty rooms that's that's the beauty of it for me and i'm not a morning person at all I, I would struggle every morning getting out of bed but it's worth it for those for the empty rooms and the silence
3: look katrina if i was on my own in trinity's museum building i would be utterly terrified who <laughs> place on campus we've time for a couple more questions i want to briefly mention that uh, leonard hobbs from trinity research and innovation is with us uh, and he's covering, he's asking about something we've we've touched on, one of the challenges which many employers have looked to is to provide a work-life balance. Does this new world of remote working provide a greater opportunity to achieve this by providing greater flexibility and unshackling the employee from the office and the dreaded commute? And I know, Ryan, you touched on this, um, but I wonder if in answering that, and this is really for anyone, I can load onto it a slightly different question but it's something nearly all of you have touched on in moving to new cultures of work are we also having to adapt new cultures of time itself Katrina when you began you were very specific on the hours worked and the wages per hour and the shifts and the nature of that regimenting your day Um, but I noticed by the time we got to you Ryan and even to you Ilsa we have a sense of time moving into a slightly different uh, mode and uh, of course all of us remember Charlie Chaplin's uh, mm-hmm. gre- definition of uh, industrial work culture in that great film Modern Times where the worker actually gets trapped inside the wheels of the clock, the cogwheels of the clock. So time and work used to go together in a very regimented way, But if we're slipping away from those definitions of work is time itself or our concept of time changing i'm being a bit philosophical here and i hope that's not a problem but anyone want to to venture on that one i can make a small
1: comment And, and i i think that there's a history of basically the industrial history of what work meant and the notion of clocking in and clocking out and a lot of that was because there was massive assets machines you had to go in and use um, or let's say a particular time when you need to go in and do cleaning you know like th- there's a there's a, there's a time window or you have to go somewhere in a certain time and work on an asset in the information economy you're unleashed yes right there's no asset I have to go and set in front of and I can do everything in my home technically that I could do in the in the office one of the only dangers is privacy which we haven't talked about in terms of what sort of information are you are you gathering from your home. But I think that's this notion that we're not in this sort of big physical industrial factories where you have to come and stand in a line or else you're not working. In the creative age, in the industrial age, in the, I'm sure Katrina, when you're writing books, you don't have to go into Trinity to write your book and go home and you can't write anymore. It's, it's the same in, in a lot of this sort of more creative um, and information driven professions that you don't need to be constrained to a thing where you have to book in time to go into the office.
3: We're becoming more relaxed perhaps about time, but also it's the life cycle, isn't it? The time of your life that you spend at work and the time till retirement. And-
1: that's right. And maybe also global, yeah. right? I'm in a global job. Yes. So, you know, I, I have calls after this sometimes, you know, that will go with my, with different kinds I have in the United States. So the notion that work is local is also changing. And I think increasingly there's more and more roles where you, well, that doesn't mean I start at the same time. You know, that's the danger. You start the same time, keep the industrial schedule and then do the new schedule as well. And the next thing you're doing is working 18 hours a day. So you have to, uh,
3: Carol, did you want to come in on that? Because I was very aware that you were talking about the passage of life to retirement and that traditional marking of the life cycle around work that, you know, you work until 65 or whatever, 66 or whatever it is, and then you stop. If we're losing that kind of shape as well, and I realize this doesn't apply in, in many occupations, are we actually, again, changing our perceptions of, of time and, and the way companies work? I think when you think about
0: the industrial revolution um, and industrial capitalism, you think about leisure time as something which emerged in response to that. And you think about unions developing um, campaigns to get workers more time off work. And so it does make you think about um, In the absence of clear demarcations of what is your work time and what is your leisure time, where are we with time now with industrial jobs and lots of jobs time not at work is not just leisure time it's also rest time you know if you're physically tired and. But it does, I suppose it's that issue then of the individual negotiating something that we don't really have any tools or skills or previous history of negotiating. And I might just go back to Ilse's point about, you know, the the precarious employment and um, permanent job and the end of the kind of having a job for life. I suppose it makes me think about, when economies start to change, one of the critiques is that education systems are slow to change. So it's hard to get one to catch up to the other. Um, but if you don't have jobs for life or jobs are just much more uncertain and, and insecure, all the other things around that, um, and I can just talk now to the society that I'm living in, um, but I'm thinking of your welfare structures, your pension structures, your health system, you know. Um, the, the private public system and mortgages, the things that expect a very regular income over time. Um, I'm 40 now, when I thought of work experience and work as an experience of different jobs, I did think of that when I was in my twenties and then I got a bit older. And i started to worry and being in academia it was incredibly worrying and is still incredibly worrying because you could get lots of experience and i had great experience and lots of different things but at a certain point you have sleepless nights about will this just be all experience until i'm 60 and where am i then with my supports and welfare structures and my rent and things like that so i suppose it's work is changing but there's all these other things around it Um, and work is taking more and more of our our time Um, but I just don't know how much better off um, economically and safer and more secure people are they just don't seem to be.
3: And and of course, that's maybe something that that has fueled or prompted something I mentioned at the beginning, and it's being picked up by Glenn Loughran, uh, the Great Resignation. Why are we seeing the Great Resignation, um, which we've heard about happening in the US? Uh, Will it happen here? Will people just say no to work? We're in the last minute of time, but uh, anyone want to speculate on that? Are we going to see the Great Resignation in Ireland?
4: I, I read a really interesting article on, on this recently, actually, that about how that, that language of the Great Resignation developed and that it's actually not about people leaving their jobs. Like, it's about the reasons why people are thinking about leaving their job. And it's because they're, they're reassessing their relationship with, with work. And, and maybe something to, to what you were saying earlier, Carol, as well. You mentioned something that you know, the culture of work can't be separated from the structures that, that support it. And 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 I, and I think we've 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 kind of been in that race for so long, and 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 unless those structures develop around us, like we have to be always on. We, you know, there's work has, has taken such a big part of our lives, and I, I really do believe that people are. Reassessing that and reassessing that relationship with work, in terms of looking after, thinking about what it is that that they're looking for, uh, what it is that they want to achieve outside of work. That's not just everything that's happening. If if, if this pandemic has shown us anything, it's it's kind of brought us back to the basics, almost, of what we think is important, and not maybe get so caught up in work. So I think it's more of a reassessment than a great resignation. It's 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 a rethink of our relationship great, with
3: work. The great reassessment. The great rethink. Mm-hmm. Um, Elsa, that's a good note to finish on and I know uh, all of you do have work tomorrow, so uh, we must let you go, but uh, it is with with many thanks this has been a really interesting talk and I know there's a lot more to be said, so we might revisit it in the future, but thank you very much uh, Katrina, Carol Ryan and Elsa for joining us and giving us your expertise my thanks as well to the John Pollard Foundation as always for their support for this series uh, to Francesca and the team at the Trinity Long Room Hub who have put things together so brilliantly and thanks finally to everybody who's joined us and for all the questions uh, and interest i hope that you will keep an eye on the Trinity Long Room Hub website and join us for events in the future. The Hub is a community.
2: community.
1: <laughs> Manuscripts, books and print, book print cultures, stamping provenance language towards the history of the Taiwanese like library.
3: As well
2: as being here. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities created by start, the world's age. The Hub is about impact. The The hub is about impact.
1: The hub is for everyone. the rise of feminist through Here's to the next 10 years.